Hello, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I am your host, Chris Wakalik, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this hilly little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Lisa Bale. Now, if you know Lisa, like I know Lisa, then you're going to know her as that woman that goes off on multi-week mountaineering trips along with her husband, Peter. Well, we're going to get to hear a lot about that today and a heck of a lot more. We're going to get to hear Lisa describe growing up in England during World War II. Lisa will also discuss the experience that she and her husband, Peter, had building a log house on the island. And as well, Lisa will talk about the book that she wrote about a gentleman named John Clark. That and a whole lot more, and I had such a fun time joking around with Lisa. She has got a great sense of humor, and and it was nice to share a bunch of laughs with her. And once again, thanks to Ben McConkie for the music you're about to hear, transitioning from the intro to the interview. Really appreciate that a lot, Ben. Thank you again for doing that. So welcome to the first episode of the 2019 season. We'll see you guys on the other side. And without further ado, here is my interview with Lisa Bale. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm quite honored to be here. And uh, yeah. Thank you for coming here. We're here on a uh, Wednesday afternoon, gloomy Wednesday afternoon in late fall. And yeah, thanks for thanks for agreeing to come here. Let's, uh, let's jump into the first traditional question that I always get to on this podcast. And that is what brought you to Pender Island? I think it was the magic of Roseland. And uh, I was working at the pulmonary research lab, which was based at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver and is part of UBC. And one of the essential people there was Ray Dalby. He was an electronics whiz. And when you're doing research studies, often you need pieces of equipment that will do things that, uh, well, you can't get machines to do that because they haven't been invented yet. So Ray would, would say, Ray, we need to be able to measure this, this, and this. And he would go off and he'd put all these, you know, electrodes and things together and we'd uh, be able to make our measurements. But he also became a really, really good friend. And uh, I think when he heard that I wanted to buy a piece of land because I grew up on land on a farm in Lincolnshire, uh, when I was little, I didn't leave for Canada till uh, 1964. And uh, so, you know, while I was looking, I looked up in the Pemberton Valley and down the Fraser Valley. And then Ray said, well, have you ever been to Pender Island? And he told us about Roseland and the magic of Roseland and all those little cabins that Dave Davidson and Florence had. And uh, I think it was April. And uh, at that time, I just hooked up with Peter, and we both worked at the lab, and uh, off we went. Our first ferry trip, landing at Otter Bay in the dark, and uh, Dave came to meet us. It was just awesome because he came in his 49 Chevy, which I think lasted for years after that, and there was Dave with his awesome, deep, rumbling 
laugh. He was so friendly, and he drove us back to Roseland. And we had no idea really where we were because it was pitch dark, and there were lights, but not too many lights, and lots of little cabins, and we were cozy. And then the next morning, of course, we wake up, and I just love that when you you don't know what you're going to wake up to, and was looking out to the sea and the ocean and all these rocks and little cabins. And then Dave and Florence were so, you know, they're so warm, so welcoming and looked after everybody there, you know, in a fantastic way. And charged about, I'd say, 18 bucks a weekend. I don't know if it was per day or not. It was just peanuts, you know. I mean, that was, you know, a holiday place for families for years and years and years. And you could see they had their special cabins that they liked the best and they would leave little carvings and little things on the doors that said it was theirs and so on. And they could come back the next year and yes, it would look the same. And yeah, it was just so fabulous. Okay. And so what year was this in again? That would have been 1980, I think, around then. Yeah. Okay. So you came over as a tourist at first. Yeah. I never quite liked to think of myself as a tourist but yeah (laughs) i guess i was a prospector (laughs) looking for land (laughs) you came over as a prospector at first (laughs) oh no but so your first interaction with the island was was coming over and just sort of assessing it for potentially buying a piece of land that's right yeah okay all right you talk about roseland and uh you mentioned dave davison and uh florence who are two names that are new to me but it, maybe if you just want to tell me about uh, those two people a little bit and yeah, just maybe a little bit more about those two if you want. Yeah, I think Dave and Florence were living there and owned the place because of Mr. and Mrs. Rowe, who were the original owners, hence Roseland. And Mrs. Rowe was still living in her house, you know, and it was all ivy over it. And occasionally you'd see her looking out of the window. And Dave had been a, I think he was a, a teacher. He taught shop. And he'd been coming for years and years and years, and they became very good friends of the Rose. So when the the Rose, you know, they wanted to kind of pass on the the little resort, and the Davidsons bought it, but at a very good price, and the condition was from the Rose, as long as they didn't change it, you know, any build some horrible great resort, and they definitely never did that, you know, they, I think the place looked the same for years and years and years until the Parks took it on, Parks Canada. Yeah, and that was kind of another magic thing because I always imagine when the when Dave and Florence died or moved on, you know, that somebody would buy it and develop it and put some mega project up there. But they were happy that the Parks got it and so was the rest of the family, you know, who could have got a lot of money from that piece of land. Dave Jameson and uh, Dave and Florence's family i think two daughters yeah nice yeah it's a beautiful spot it's actually come up a few times with previous guests roseland and uh it's a pretty special spot on the yeah. island for sure but you, so you started to look for property on the island and oh, uh how, well that how, was another thing dave you know he'd built his own log house there i was thinking yeah i could build a house because i wanted land and grew up on a farm in lincolnshire in england and yeah you know it's not rocket science to build a house build your own house and you know, and then when we did buy a piece of land, Manfred Beren, who lived, he had that awesome office in Hope Bay that's where the restaurant is now before it was all 
bent down and he just looked right out on the water and he uh, showed us a few bits of property, suggested Magic Lake. No, no, I wanted somewhere where I could have a huge garden and, you know, somewhere with some probably fertile. And so that's when we looked at the piece that we have now. It's a couple of acres and has lots of water. So we're really lucky. And then it had all these cedar trees. So, haha, thought log house, you know, let's check with Dave. So Dave Davidson came over and he said, yeah, he said, he looked and I said, I think you could build a log house. You've got enough. We counted trees and that was kind of the beginning. Fantastic. Yeah, actually, you brought a scrapbook over and showed me some photos just before we started the interview and it's pretty amazing. But yeah, it was great to see photos of you building the log cabin. But if you want to talk about that a little bit about the uh, process of building your own log house. Yeah, I think that was about the time when Peter and I got together. He was still, well, we were both working in Vancouver and we did have this thing that we should not rush. You know, you'd see too many people kind of, they build a boat or they build a house together and they split up and they never get to use the thing. So we decided, right, we're not in a hurry. This is a process. And uh, we started slowly and we're very lucky actually that we were able to build our own house because now, you you know, people can't do that. They have to get take a course and all of this. We actually did take a course. Uh, it was a weekend course in log house building. And uh, so that was pretty quick, how to do a notch and how to put in a screw jack, which I thought, no, no, I can't do a screw jack. That nearly finished me. It turned out to be easy. So it was a process of thinking, well, I could do this as long as you don't think of the whole thing in one fell swoop and you just got to do one thing at a time. And Peter used to lie awake thinking, how the hell are we going to get the logs up? And I think, well, we'll figure it out, you know. So that was where Fred Smith came in and then Bob Amy's, because anybody with a log house, you'd go and visit. And uh, Fred, it was always, Fred, what did we do now? You know, so he'd kind of tell us what to do. And then the other guy that was fantastic was Jim Scott, who owned Pendrile Lumber at that time. And uh, we'd go in there and he, He'd say, you guys thought of this, you know, and then he might spend half an hour with us, you know, just explaining what we should do next or the things that weren't to do with the log part, you know, putting in the lighting and the vents and all of this stuff. And you've got to make holes for the wires and that thing. You have to think about that, right? For sure. So wait a second, you guys took a weekend course on how to build a log cabin and just said, let's go for it. That's right. Well, and what they tell you about a log house, though, is you've got to try something before you start the real thing, even if it's a dog kennel or something. So we made a tiny pump house out of little logs that are about six inches in diameter. Actually, when we bought that land, there was a big, somebody had gone in and cut down all the big, big cedar trees. So all these branches, big branches left that we made the little pump house out of, cleaned it up. So that's still there. It's very cute. Okay. And so at the time you were living in Vancouver as well? Yeah, we were living in Vancouver. We'd come on weekends and we made a little hut, you know, out of, it was from Sunbury Cedar. It was a packaged thing. I think we put it up one Easter over a long weekend and then we looked at it. My, the roof isn't quite straight, but anyway, that's all right. Still there. (laughs) (laughs) So we used to squeeze into that, you know, kids and then the two boys and then their friends and us. There'd be five or six of us in this what was it, 12 by 16 or something, structure. Cozy. 
Okay. And so how long did it take you to complete the log house? Oh, it's still going, I think. It's still going. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, what, what's well, we've been living in it for quite a while. Yeah. Since, uh, I don't know when we moved in. It must have been late 80s or something when we got the roof on. Yeah. Finally, we got the roof on. Okay. And then you could kind of move in a bit. But, you know, you you do the outside, but the inside takes forever just putting on, yeah, the finishing and the walls and the bit of drywalling and the floors and lining the ceiling. <laughs> For sure. It doesn't stop, right? No. Like you say, definitely. But so in the late 80s, you moved in full time? Well, probably 90s. Yeah, I could look. We have about half a dozen more log log books. So we'd write, you know, what we were up to and what we were doing. So wow, really? I'd have to look back in those books. Yeah. So when you came to live here full-time on Pender, what prompted that decision? And how did, did things change for you when you came to live here full-time? Or how did things unfold for you at that time in your life? I think I started coming over more often, way before Peter. He wasn't ready to retire. And actually, I'd have to look to see how long I've been full-time. I mean, it's not. Maybe the last 10 years or something, maybe less even. Because I got involved in, you know, after doing research work in Vancouver, then I worked half-time and ran that wilderness education program in the schools with John Clark, who's BC's best-known, most famous mountaineer, who turned conservationist. So he and I did that school program together. And I ran the program, he went into the school. So, And that didn't end till. 2005 or something so okay and so then after that you moved to after that i was more on pender yeah well let, let's just branch off from something that you just said about john clark and running uh wilderness wilderness school programs it was called the wilderness education program so what happened with john after he you know he explored the coast range for over 40 years and uh if anybody knows anything about the Coast Range, they hear the name John Clark. His name is synonymous with the Coast Range Mountains because he decided when he was in his late 20s, he was at UBC, and he decided that he was going to uh, fill in the gaps in the mountains. There were only a few that had been climbed, right, the big ones. So that's what he spent the rest of his life doing. So he made over 600 first ascents. That's the first person to climb a peak. It was just amazing. And he was a really, really gregarious, funny, funny, you know, he could have been a stand-up comedian. I always think of John as an entertainer first and foremost, but he was so passionate and so driven. So, uh, and it wasn't until a friend of his got killed on a trip they did together in, that was 93, Randy Stolman, and then John decided that he was going to turn to conservation because Randy had also been a conservationist. So he kind of picked up the flag where Randy left off. And then we started the wilderness education program, getting kids connected to the wilderness. And uh, of course, John had taken photographs. He had great stories. And he was just like, be like having David Thompson or Simon Fraser going into your school and saying, hey, guys, guess what I've been doing lately? Hey, look at these pictures, you know, shining these pictures on the wall and introducing you to all the peaks and valleys and animals and amazing exploits. Okay, so was this high schools that you were going into? No, it was everything from kindergarten to high school to university. He had this fantastic ability to talk to anybody at their own level, right? Whether you were a little 
three-year-old or a grandma or university, he had that facility. He just could just jump right in and deliver effortlessly, it seemed. Yeah. And you actually brought over a book that you wrote about John Clark as well, too. And so in uh, 2012, it, it was published. But, yeah. uh, so you wrote a book about the man and his uh, exploits. What prompted you to, to write this book? Well, you know, when, when John was alive and we were running the school, I said, John, you should write a book. You know, you, you've got all these amazing adventures because he'd sit at the dinner table and tell you about these stories, right? I wish I'd put a microphone under the table to collect all the stories. And then he said, oh, no, you know, that's not for me. I'm, an, I'm not somebody who writes a book. His friend, John Baldwin, he said he, he'll write books. And so it didn't happen. And I would try again. And, and then I knew that Howard White of Harbour Publishing had also tried to get John to write a book, but John wasn't having it, you know, so, and actually John had tried to get Howard White to climb a mountain, but that didn't happen, so <laughs> it did happen eventually, Okay, thanks to the book. <laughs> so when John died, you know, and other people talked about writing a book because he got the Order of Canada, you know, he was a pretty special guy, so... Somebody else was going to write the book, and we got together, and I thought, maybe I could do the research. Then I realized, wait a minute, I, you know, I knew all his family. I knew all the teachers that he'd been into the schools. I knew all the mountaineers because I'm a mountaineer, and, except his early friends in the 50s and 60s. And uh, that was really fun, getting to meet them, hearing their stories of the hippie days. Right on. Well, you know, it's interesting to take on a project where you're – creating a piece of art that's solely based on somebody else's experiences. Like, I, I think that's a really uh, admirable thing to do. Creating something to leave behind that uh, highlights somebody's achievements, somebody else's achievements. You, you must have really thought very highly of this man, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. He had one of the biggest influences in my life, I think, John Clark, you know? I mean, he was a minimalist. If you can go out there, you can put on a backpack, you carry all the stuff you need for a month. That's pretty amazing and have a fantastic time while you're doing it. You know, that kind of leaves an impression. And somebody who just didn't need, he didn't need stuff. And uh, yeah, that, that left an impression. And he was, you know, he, he always listened to people. He always made you feel you were the most important person that particular time. Didn't matter. You should see the letters he got from the kids, from the students, from... Everybody. And when, you know, at the end, it's very ironic because he died of a brain tumor. But when he was in hospital, he was in palliative care eventually. And uh, I would say 95% of the, the uh, people that came to visit were for John. In fact, I had this book where people could write in because it's called Messages for John because there were so many people, they couldn't all get into his room, right? Wow. Yeah. So they'd write messages and, you know, guys don't usually write from their hearts often, I should say, not always, but there's some amazing stuff in that. So uh, he was like a, a lesson in how to die, right? With grace and humor and equanimity. Yeah, it was, it was pretty special. Thanks for sharing. That was really, yeah. that was great. But you mentioned as well too that you're into mountaineering as well and that was the basis of your connection with him, I would imagine. But can you describe what got you into mountaineering and you also uh, are part of the BC Mountaineering Club and yeah. Alpine Club of Canada? Alpine Club of Canada, yeah. That was when I was working in uh, Montreal and 
I went to Toronto for a few years, came back to Montreal, realized, oh, I don't know anybody anymore. My friends have left. And so I joined the Quebec Society for for bird watching anyway. And one of the first things we did, we went down to New York State on a bird watching weekend. And we stayed at this fabulous farmhouse and it was owned by the Alpine Club of Canada, right? They had farmhouse and uh, 80 acres. And then that evening I started talking with some of the guys about what they were going to do the next day and it sounded so exciting and all these hikes and stuff. So I never went out bird watching. <laughs> I went out hiking and then you know, when I moved to uh, Vancouver in 77, there were all these mountains and real mountains. So, yeah, I never looked back. Okay. Well, what was it specifically that drew you to being outside and exploring nature like that? Well, I think, you know, f- my foundation was growing up on a farm. I spent most of my life, early life, outdoors, right? I knew every aspect of that farm, every hedgerow, every field, you know, all the where the animals were and so on, and just loved it. Yeah, I always liked the outdoors. So I think that really kind of sets the stage for the rest of your life. And those early days in farming, it was totally different from now. Very, very different. You know, it was much more of a a community then, which uh, you get a little bit of that on Pender, like doing the hop harvest here. Just reminded me of that, you know, when everybody, all hands come on board and help out when you're doing a harvest and then you have a big feast afterwards and yeah, it's fantastic. Okay. Well, let's circle back to mountaineering in a little bit here, but let's talk about growing up on a farm in England. I guess if you could tell us what part of England that was again, and then also talk about, uh, yeah, what life was like growing up in England before you came over to Canada. Yeah. Before we moved to the farm, I guess it was, you know, I was during the war in 1940. So I was born in the bombs were falling, the battle of Britain don't remember that part, but then my parents were actually both research chemists. Well, my father was a research chemist. They met at Oxford. And then there was a movement at that time to go back to the land, these squatters. And and he'd been ill. He'd got pneumonia. That was the time when, before there were antibiotics, but May and Baker had come out with this magic thing. So he didn't die. I had four elder brothers, and we all moved to this farm that was was actually feudal at that time because all of the land around there was was owned by this Lord Ancaster. He owned one of the biggest landowners, England, Scotland, Wales. And so you paid a tithe every year. So you didn't own any of the property, but you owned, you know, your cows and the machines that you brought and everything. Wait a second, what's a tithe? Tithe? Yeah. You pay rent once Uh, a year. Oh, okay. You go to the, pay your rent. It's very feudal. It's amazing. It's still exist to some degree. Lots of the villages would be owned by these huge landowners. So yeah, oh, the funny part about the farm, you might want to, this is a digression, but when he moved, my father moved, he was a laborer. He didn't own the farm or he just worked there for, I think about five pounds a week or a month with his five kids. And it was this parson, Mr. Ivans owned it. But the reason why Mr. Ivans got it was because he couldn't preach because he'd lost his voice. So he moved and he took up farming, but he couldn't farm. Actually, one of the fields is still called Parsons Folly, I think, to this day. He was planting oats in the middle of summer or something. I I don't know. But I do remember the war at the farm. 
And uh, my brothers went to a boarding school. Instead of bringing back clothes, they brought back little bits of shrapnel and hand grenades. And there was all kinds of helmets and things around, you know, war trophies for them. And then in the next village was this huge castle. And all the Belgian paratroopers were stationed there. And they used to march past the farm and... So we got to know some of them, and then we had prisoners of war on the farm, Italians, Germans, Ukrainians. And some of those prisoners of war, like some of the Germans, I remember, they came back after the war to work on the farm because they, they enjoyed it and they liked England. So that was pretty amazing. And, uh, yeah, I remember D-Day and big bonfires and... But for me, you know, it wasn't anything bad. We had blackouts, but when you're a kid, you don't mind blackouts. We didn't have electricity anyway, so it didn't really matter. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so you spent a lot of time outside while you were on, living on the farm. And what, what kind of animals were you tending oh, we to? Oh, had, we had everything. Geese, pigs, ducks, turkeys, no sheep, cows. And then eventually it became a, a dairy farm. That means you've got to get up and milk the cows twice a day. And that's uh, a lot of work. Okay. <laughs> Do you really want to know more about the farm? Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you, you mentioned that what got you into exploring the coastal mountains and being into mountaineering all started from being on the farm and being outside. And so I think it's kind of interesting to sort of hear your recollections about hmm. what, uh, what you remember fondly of those times. Yeah. So I think the irony is there, though, where we were in Lincolnshire, it's totally flat and... Uh, no mountains. And actually, there was no petrol, no gas at that time. You know, you couldn't really get to the next town, hardly, because there was rationing. And even after the war, there was rationing. So you're very much isolated where you are. People got around on bicycles. They actually walked. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah. So we never, you know, when I grew up in England, I never really traveled. It wasn't until years later I'd come back and take a look around, go visit these other counties and things. So you're quite confined. So what eventually brought you to Canada? What was the, the first? Oh, well, yeah. So I had to go to school. That was the problem when I was about, my brothers went to the village school, which was about a mile or so away. We didn't really live in a village. It was a hamlet. It was like a couple of farms with few houses. But the village school was dismal education. So my parents didn't send me there. I kind of got homeschooled by them. I mean, they were both, you know, they'd been to Oxford. They were smart people, so they would teach me. And then they sent me to a convent when I was about 10 the equivalent of Jesuits, these were the Sacred Heart nuns, but it was miles from home, right? I just imagine I go to my brother's school, but that was a boy's school, right? So then I uh, ran away a few times. Well, I ran away twice from that school, tried to get home, and it was a miles. It was the other side of London. And then they moved me to another school, which was only 16 miles away. So that was, I was able to run away. It was actually the day that King George VI's funeral I escaped in the early hours of the morning and Whoa, did started have, walking home. Did you have to like climb down a rope through a window? How'd you, how'd you make your escape? No, but it was a big old mansion that these nuns had, Lord Gainsborough. 
And there were these, you know, these huge, big wooden doors that have another little door in the middle and you had to kind of, I was tiny, you know, turn the handle and escape into the dawn. But I knew my way home from there because I'd ridden on my pony all those, a lot of those roads. But uh, my father intercepted me halfway home. Oh, really? He got the memo that you escaped Memo? Again. I don't know. I guess the nuns had phoned. <laughs> Not a good day. My brother had just broken his ankle. I'd escaped from school. King George VI's funeral. Anyway, he grabbed me. My mother must have put me in the van. She must have said, Brian, you can't let the nuns see that awful car, you know? And we get to the gates of the school, you know, these huge long driveways down to these mansions. And uh, he got out to open the gate and I escaped out of the car. But then he dragged me all the way up that driveway to see the Reverend Mother. Of course, this was the third time I'd run away from school. So they took me to the chapel. They made me kneel down in front of the altar and they made me promise I would never run again. Did you promise you'd never run again? I did promise. Okay. Did you run again? No. Okay. But I got a pony. (laughs) What was the pony's name? Tom Thumb. Tom Thumb. So that that made everything okay having a pony. Well, it made it better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Did not want to be there, but the pony made things better. So uh, what eventually led you to coming to Canada? Oh, I'd been doing my nursing training in a big hospital in London. And uh, I think a lot of the, you know, when you finished your training, it's like now you go and do a, go and look around the world for a year or something. Yeah. Lots of people plan that. So, and I had one friend who used to commute between Canada, between Montreal and London. What? Used to commute? Yeah. She'd have a job there and then she'd, you know, miss her parents and go back to Quebec and then she'd come back to London and she lived in a flat there. And so that was Jenny. So I knew one person. I thought that's good. Actually, I wanted to go to the Bahamas because we had this guy that used to work on the farm, Nigel, who'd actually promised to marry me when he was 21 and I was seven. But he didn't wait. He married this other woman <laughs> and he went to live in the Bahamas on this 81-foot yawl take people around. So I wanted to go visit them, but I couldn't afford a ticket. And of course, you couldn't get a job there because they didn't want other people working. So I thought, okay, I'll go to Canada and I'll visit from there. So that's what happened. So what was was the first city? It was uh, Montreal you first went to? Well, actually, Quebec City. I sailed on the Empress of Britain. Took five days. We had a storm. Best place to be was the swimming pool. You didn't feel so sick. And uh, we got to Quebec City, and then we went down to St. Lawrence, arrived at Montreal, and then I had this place to stay because my friend Jenny's apartment, right? She wasn't there at the time, but her other friend was, yeah. And I think the following year, I went down to the Bahamas, so that was awesome. Oh, so you did make it to the Bahamas? Yeah, I made it. Nice. Well, actually, I just want to talk about taking a huge ship across the Atlantic and then going down the St. Lawrence. That that kind of amazes me. Yeah. And and there was a swimming pool. This was... uh, In the ship, yeah. Okay, so it, was, it, it wasn't like on the outside, it was on the inside? No, the it was ship? on the inside. Okay. So when it was rough, it was kind of the best place to be because, you know, the water tends to find its own level. But I think at one point people were so sick they didn't want them even to go in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up helping out. But, yeah, I think it took me a long time to feel sick myself, but eventually I did. 
It's interesting because the idea of crossing the Atlantic on a ship just seems so foreign to me, obviously, because now planes, right? But uh, was that the main mode of transportation? Yeah, I think it was then, you know, and it was fantastic because you take five or more days to get there and then down the St. Lawrence, you you make a few friends on the way. I mean, it's just shocking to go from England to Canada. was then, I mean, to another country and... uh so you kind of have a little more time to adjust. And some of those people I met, you know, I stayed in touch with for uh, some years, probably. Most of the people was interesting, weren't going to Montreal, probably because it was French, and they went off to Toronto, which was pretty boring in those days. There was nothing there. Whoa, Toronto was Toronto, boring? Toronto, boring, yeah. Boring? Yeah, okay. there was nothing. It was tiny. <laughs> so Montreal was far better than Toronto? Cause it was always an interesting city, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think so, yeah. I've never been to Toronto. So I lived in Montreal for six months, but weird. I've seen a lot of Canada, but I've never seen Toronto. Mm. Am, am I not missing anything? Well, depends if you like. Now it's a big city. Right. And okay. the reason it got big because of the problems in Quebec, the, they wanted to separate, right? So that was going on when I arrived. They were having mailboxes blown up and all this stuff and Saint-Jean-Baptiste parades and you never know. What was going to flare up? And then there was Laporte got kidnapped and done in and there were all these soldiers around the city. It was the weirdest thing in Montreal right? when there are soldiers on the corner of your street. Creepy. That sounds super tumultuous. That sounds, mm. yeah, mm. frightening. So in 77, you know, it was everybody was leaving in droves from Montreal. They said in, in Vancouver, that's McGill West because all these academics left. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so there's oh, so a mass exodus to the West from... Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm. And so what year did you make your move from the East to Se the West? 77. 77. Okay. Yeah. And then you came out West and you discovered the coastal mountains. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about a little bit about the mountaineering again, because when we spoke a month or two ago, I was really blown away with some of the experiences you and your partner, Peter, or husband, Peter. Both. Both. Okay. You and your husband. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just checking. Just checking. But we, did, we actually got married, but that was pretty funny. We got married on Pender and uh, we thought, you know, there was some of my family came over, a couple of them, and then a couple of Peter's family were there. And he said one day, he said, okay, let's get married. And then I was doing a whole lot of experiments, right? Work, studies. So I sort of said, okay, this is after we've been together for 12 years, right? And then I said, oh, I don't have time. And he was so gloomy. And then a few days later, I said, okay, but you organize it. So he organized this wedding. Wow. Good job getting out of planning the wedding. Yeah. Good work. But it was a pretty easy wedding. 13 guests. <laughs> what part of the island did you get married on? On the deck of the house. Yeah. And the Reverend Mundy, you know, Pat Mundy's dad? I know Pat Mundy. I do yeah, know. Yeah, he's his father okay. and uh, his wife, and they were there. So Mary Rara played the flute. Beautiful. She was our music. Yeah, that was beautiful. And wow. then she was, the, she was with Angus at that time, and they had Erica, who was about two years old. She was the flower girl. And then I had my nephew, no, my niece and her husband were out. Okay. All right, so um, yeah, back to the, the mountaineering. And so you guys have a lot of experience being in the backcountry, off trail, mountaineering. Uh, what drew you to doing that? And what sort of adventures have you guys had along the way? 
Ooh, lots of adventures. Yeah, I started doing that, you know, when I was back in Quebec, when I joined the Alpine Club, and then we go down to New York State, and it was hiking and some rock climbing, and then in the winter you go up to Laurentians and do skiing. And then when I came to Vancouver, you know, I actually wanted to, the reason I wanted to move west so that I could have a horse here, it's easier to keep a horse. I briefly had a horse back east, but, you know, you can't leave them out in the winter. But you can't go mountaineering and have a horse. Horses are expensive to keep. And I got totally sucked into mountaineering and when I first got here. So in 77, because Peter and I hadn't got together then, so I'd go off on weekends and do all these weekend trips and then come back and tell him about it. And, of course, he was stuck with his family and wasn't into it at that time. That came later. But, yeah, it's just the most amazing thing. There are the coast mountains. There are no roads or trails. You're beyond all roads and trails. There are no neat paths to get you anywhere. You usually start from the uh, tide level because there are all these inlets in fact, if you measured all the inlet, you know, up the coast, I think they, you could stretch it halfway around the world. So intricate. So then you got to walk up to get to the ridges, right? Five, six, seven, eight thousand feet, because that's your highway. Once you get up onto the ridges through the old growth forests, you can go along. And uh, if you plan your trip cleverly, you don't go down to many valleys. You don't want to go down into a valley again if you can help it. And uh, I guess we learned from John Clark, right? Because everybody who's into mountaineering knew about John Clark and you give slideshows. And I remember hanging around in his slideshows, you know, trying to get invited to go on a trip, but I was much too shy to, you know, to ask, even ask. But uh, so at that time I did weekend trips and it was later on I started doing longer trips, maybe a week and then two weeks and so on. So then you've got to start thinking about, you know, putting in food drops along the way, probably at every week's worth of travel. John and his friend John Bullrin, they used to just, that time it was before helicopters were available, and they'd kind of get a float plane or a little plane, and they'd make these cardboard boxes that kind of wrap up. And if it was a sporting pilot, they'd get him to fly really, really low over a glacier and they could drop the parcels of food, and then they'd hope they'd still be there when they got back a week later or 10 days later. But these days, if there aren't any high lakes where you can put a, a food drop in by float plane, not on the lake, but get them to land and then you put it out, you can take a helicopter and then put them in at weekly intervals or five-day intervals. You could go out there for three, four, five weeks. Nice. Well... I've done a lot of hiking over the years, but I've never done mountaineering or gone off trail a lot. But the idea for me of hiking more than five days seems excruciating. <laughs> but can you describe some of uh, maybe some of the longer hikes you two have done together? Uh, yeah, we've done yeah a lot. We did quite a few together. One of the most magic ones was around the Stein. You know, the Stein... When I first came here, they were trying to make it into a park and there was a Stein Festival every year to raise awareness. And then finally around 95, I think, the whole of the Stein Valley, which has about nine different ecosystems in it. It is from Lytton all the way up to uh, Pemberton Way. 
So the idea is with, you know, you get a river valley that you kind of walk around the ridges on on one side, go to the headwaters and walk down the ridges on the other side and come back. And, uh, of course, with the Stein, it's huge. So we did it over about uh, three trips, I think. We circum, well, it's not circumnavigating, but we walked around the whole of the Stein Valley in about three trips, which is pretty amazing. And I've got all those pictures, you know, I, I want to um, scan them in, so someday I wouldn't mind giving a slideshow because it's pretty remarkable in there. And a lot of it has been left without trails on purpose to be a refuge for animals. I've seen a lot of mountain goats in there. You know, one time on a glacier, there were about 20 plus goats, and often you're just following the goat trails. If you get lost, well, which way do the goats go? You know, How did they get down? Yeah. Okay, so when you say three separate trips, how many days each trip? I think two to three weeks. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. And it's just the two of you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty okay. amazing. Yeah, that is kind of amazing. And so when you say there's food drops as well, too, so what are you guys using? Are you guys using dehydrated food? Well, I always dehydrate our own. I have, you know, in a food dryer. Again, this is a la John Clark. You don't want to carry more than you absolutely have to. So you dehydrate and then you weigh everything out and uh, make sure you're not taking too much. And as he would say, you know, you don't need to take treats because things become treats because food is one of your all-absorbing passions in the mountains. You know, you're doing a lot of hard work. So, uh, yeah. So you you can eat pretty well and all you take is a little stove and a couple of pots and, yeah, you're good. Okay. And so are you guys uh, purifying the water or are you just drinking right in the streams? No. Water is so good, right, in these streams and there's never any problem getting water. Well, occasionally if you're on the snow, but then you have to melt snow. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know, you know, it's been such a lovely experience to drink water coming out of a stream that mm -hmm. it's not something that's really immediately tangible to me, but maybe it is actually because I know that when I'm actually drinking the water it feels so good going into my body. Well, it tastes good, that water. There's nothing like it, you know. There's nothing like that water. You can really feel like drinking it. It's not like a lot of the tap water is pretty good, but that clear mountain water is fabulous. Definitely. Yeah. And I think the motion of it is so much more natural rather than being in pipes and going around right angles and mm -hmm. coming out through a faucet, right? Yeah. That's not yeah. naturally the way water moves through our planet, right? So you're just filling up water that's been going through a very natural movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that that plays into why it actually feels really good going into your body. Maybe. You never really have to carry that much water. Because it's you always never, available. It's always available. Most places, some places, but mostly in the coast ranges, there's tons of water. Yeah. What about wildlife running into uh, wildlife while you're out in the mountains? Yeah, I guess the ones you want, I mean, you always want to be respectful of wildlife, not, but grizzly bears or black bears. Grizzly bears. I mean, you kind of, if you know and you're likely to be bears around, we always take a ice axe and tap it on a rock, you know. Don't surprise them. Because mostly whenever I've seen a bear, well, except for once, they, um, you know, they'll run away. When the times I've come kind of head to head or close to, they see you, they'll run the other way. But you don't want, you know, if there's a mum with the cubs and you surprise them, then they would attack you. Mm -hmm. Or in other cases, if bears are hungry and they realize, I've heard stories when they realize, oh, yeah, backpacks, that means food, right? 
I mean, they follow people till they put down their backpacks and then eat the food. Oh, and wow. And those guys have to leave in a hurry because they don't have any food. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. They're smart. I mean, and, and I think I've heard of bears, you know, they hear guns going off. Oh, guns are going off means there's something dead there that we could eat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that too. Mm-hmm. So what is it about being in the mountains and spending that amount of time outside that you get out of that experience? Can you put some words as to what it is that really makes you keep going back and having those experiences over and over again? I don't know. I think it's regenerative. I mean, you know what I love when you finally get organized and you leave. And that was the days we didn't really have ways of contacting people before phones or anything, or even sat phones. So you're kind of completely, you have to be self-reliant. And then you leave behind all the problems because there's nothing you can do about them. And then there's magic around every corner because you might just, in the coast range, you might as well be the first explorer. It's just like Columbus never came. <laughs> you feel as if you're the first one that climbed that peak or walked along that ridge and you're having to, you kind of really live in the moment because you've got to find your way, you've got to stay dry, you've got to stay warm. You know, there's some difficult bits to get up or to get down. You know, you could easily, if you're not looking out, you could injure yourself. There are times when you've got to spend days in the tent because the weather's bad. You know, that makes you kind of reflect on yourself and it's kind of a neat experience, right? That you never get in in this crazy world. And you find when you're you don't have all that outside stimulus, your brain goes into a different mode, right? You're sort of more creative and maybe introspective. And then you kind of seep into the wilderness, you know, you if you're out there long enough you become part of it. What do you mean exactly? And you're out there long enough you become part of it. Well, it seeps into you, you know, you know, the wetness or walking on the glaciers and I suppose becomes part of your life. You're not working against it, right? You're going with it because you're not on your own time. You're on mountain time. Mm. I mean, you're dictated by the weather, the sun, what the terrain is like. You're not the one in control. So, yeah, very different. Do you feel like at the beginning of your hike that you're working against it a little bit and after a while then... Yeah, it gets better with time. Yeah, yeah. That's what, if you read that book, John Clark says after about two weeks, you know, you take on another sort of like an altered consciousness. Yeah, you have to be out there for a longer time. And of course, you do get high in the mountains. I mean, you get endorphin release. So that's a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So it takes about two weeks. Two yeah, weeks and two then... Weeks. And Ten then days, things... two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've got to try this at some point yeah, in my you, life. You do. I do. Absolutely. Read that book. <laughs> I will. Okay. Well, we're nearing the end. Not quite, but wow. I'm like really amazed at how quickly time's gone by here. And we haven't even gotten to the second traditional question I always want to get to on the podcast. And that is uh, who's helped you along Who the way. Who are these important people? Well, you know, Fred Smith... Right from the get-go, right? You've got to go see Fred, Fred and Vi because they built their own log house. They built everything. You know, if you want one person who, who tells you how to live simply, you know, and sustainably, that's Fred and Vi. Just amazing. I wanted to, I don't think there was a, a memorial 
thing for Fred, but I wanted to do a little photographic thing for Fred. You know, Fred works because there's so many things in our house that Fred made, you know, like the front door, you benches and little things, a candlestick, the knobs on the drawers, you know, it goes on. Fantastic. So because of those things and because of Fred, I guess he'll always, always, you know, be with you. And uh, he's such a great guy and full of stories. And Vi was always welcoming when you go there and if you had any questions. And who are the other people? Of course, I said Jim Scott, who helped us immeasurably. In fact, one time, years later, he drove past our house with his wife, Jean, and he said, he pointed and he said, yeah, he said, that's the house that I built. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't actually physically build it, but he gave a lot of information. That's funny. (laughs) How not to screw up. (laughs) And so he was the former owner of the lumberyard. Yeah, the lumberyard. Yeah, he was a great guy. And then, of course, Bob Amys, who was Fred's buddy, Bob Bunny, I remember going over, Fred said, go visit them. You knock on the door and this voice says, come in. And I said, but you don't know us. Come on in anyway. (laughs) I was Bunny, you know, they're so fantastic and great, great, very warm, sharing people, right, on Pender. Oh, that's what I should part with. You know, I talked about the beginning of my life when there was that community of people helping on the farm here. But, you know, it's only in the last few years I realized What's so important about Pender is the community. And I don't think I've ever really had that. You know, there was the community at work, but it's different. Here it's it's everybody from every walk walk of life that makes enriches your life. And that's pretty immeasurable, I think. It's just a, a great thing to know, you know. I mean, my God, I never had that before. What sort of things are you invested in on Pender that, that's leading to those connections, would you say? Well, after the the log house took so long, but after that, you know, getting connected with, well, Andrew Spaulding and that refugee program, and you meet a lot of people and you get to know them and then working with the bus and now... Actually, just before you continue, you just mentioned the refugee program. There is bound to be people listening in the future who didn't know about that. Maybe if you could just talk about that briefly and just let people know what that was about. When... uh, they're all the Syrian refugees. I remember when it kind of a, was a what, about three years ago now or four years ago. And uh, there were so many of them. And every day you'd hear on the news of these horror stories and people dying in boats and so on. And, you know, I remember saying to Peter, oh, we should, you know, one day I said, we absolutely have to do something. And he says, send money. And I said, what do you mean send money? It doesn't work, right? You don't even know if it's going to get there. And then uh, something else you need to do. And then, of course, there were people on Pendle like Andrea, and uh, there was that first meeting, you know. Okay, we're going to do something, and we're going to sponsor a family of refugees, and we had to find out how to do this. And I was still a lot of time in Vancouver. Oh, so that's not that long ago. So I said, well, I could do the, you know, help to raise funds you have to get 50,000 bucks before you even start to get a family so that was a huge process and there were a lot of people involved and oh we got money in about four months you know and then we're waiting for our family and then in January what would that be 2016 perhaps they came and that family moved on pretty quickly because when other Syrians came they realized they want. They had cousins they wanted to move, right? Penn's pretty small. 
then we thought, okay, and nobody spoke Arabic, one person on the Turner Island. So that was the problem. So then we decided, okay, we'll get, you know, Spanish speaking would be great number of people. So we got two families from Colombia. And that was as much, I mean, it was a huge, huge learning curve for them and for us, right? But it was so rewarding. Yeah, it was just fantastic. So getting involved in things like that, where you can make a difference. And now we're trying to save our whales. So that's the latest. Having been arrested in, when was it, March? Five of us on Pender? Wait, you were arrested? We were arrested because there was an injunction passed that you couldn't, you know, we were um, protesting about the Kinder Morgan, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And there was an injunction that you couldn't stop them working and you couldn't stand in front of the gates. And uh, so a number of, well, now there's over 240 people have been arrested. In fact, if you go and look at, there's a Facebook page that Danica and I helped a bit with. It's called Pipeline Resistors Speak Out. And uh, there's a lot of the statements that a lot of these people are women and mostly seniors. Uh, have made before they were sentenced in the uh, courts. So, yeah, that's been an interesting time in my life. So that kind of leads to trying to save the whales. Okay, well, what are you doing to help save the whales? What's going on here? Uh, we've had a couple of meetings on Pender. A lot of people came out for the first meeting at the hall, and the result of that was an informational evening and slideshows and more, and um, we got people to write letters to the government. We got over about 70 people wrote letters, and then we, when you do all the copies and everything to the various ministers, there are about 700 letters, so you amplify the effect. And the other part of the Wales is David Boyd's an environmental lawyer, and he's now, you know, been nominated to the UN for the, for the environment and health. Mm, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's one thing that people are doing around the world that's called the rights of nature, saying, you know, animals are more than just things. You know, they're sentient beings. And, uh, for instance, corporations have legal representatives, but they're not really people, right? Mm. So there's no reason, no good reason, I don't think, that, say, orcas or other animals can't have some representative, you know. So there's a river, for instance, in New Zealand, the Wanganui, that now has rights. So if people infringe its rights, other people there can stand up for it and go to court for it, saying, yeah, you're destroying the environment, you're destroying this river and its way of being. It's called The Rights of Nature. David has a book out on, his latest book is called The Rights of Nature. It's actually totally entertaining he's always entertaining and informative and uh yeah we need to learn more about that because if we save the whales and salish sea that'll offset all those extra tankers coming through destroying our way of life and the whales lay of life and yeah yeah you know i think it's great to hear about these things because just in terms of if this is heard years or decades into the future, I think it's really interesting for people to get to hear a firsthand account of uh, people's feelings about these issues, you know, and, and you're just one person, but you're one of many who uh, feel 
this particular way about these issues. So it's great to hear you talk about these things. And, you know, we are kind of nearing the end of our time here a little bit, but I'll just ask you if there's any sort of final things that you want to touch on, whether regarding um, those issues or just your experience about living on Pender Island. But uh, I'll just save the last word for you here, Lisa. Actually, I've just been to to Europe, to Austria, and then to the UK. And I should say that compared to anywhere else, Pender Island is probably paradise. We have clean air. We don't have too many people. We have a different way of living here. We want to keep it that way because there the first thing you notice is pollution, you know, and even the people living there, they said, they said, no, 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 it's not polluted. It's just because it's the fall, it's the weather, but, you know, it absolutely is. There's this thick yellow layer, and then people are still smoking themselves to death in Austria. The place is so congested. Mind you, the cities are beautiful. The villages in England are beautiful, but, you know, we should really prize and take care of what we have on Pender Island because, you know, especially with climate change, we have to really step up and do something about it. We can't say they should do something about it. It's all of us have to do something before it's too late and it's almost getting to that point. So, you know, it's really a critical time, I think. Okay, so recognizing what we have and preserving what we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For future generations, right? How can you leave your grandkids and their kids to a world that's it's going to be? You look at the the fires in California, the fires we've had here, the floods. I mean, that's just the beginning, right, guys? We've got to smarten up. we got to smarten up. All right. <laughs> Lisa, thank you very much for coming in. I appreciate you sharing your stories. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. A lot of fun. All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I would come to Mount Norman. Mount Norman is on the South Island. And to get here, I just drove across the bridge and took my first right and made my way to the parking lot area and then walked up a very steep kilometer long trail to get to the top. And at the top on this beautiful mid-January afternoon, the sun is out it's warm. It's fantastic. I'm standing on a wooden lookout platform and there's a couple signs indicating what we're looking at here. It's along with a heavy duty pair of binoculars to get a closer look at what's happening off in the distance here. It says that uh, we are at 244 meters right now looking out at various islands the south end of the North Island as well, too, is right in front of me, as well as Salt Spring and parts of Vancouver Island as well, too. So I thought this was an appropriate place to come after that interview with Lisa. After all the talk of mountains, I thought I would come to the highest peak on Pender Island. And I want to thank Lisa one more time for doing that interview. That was really fun to do with Lisa and to get to joke around with her. It was a good time. And I want to thank you for listening to the very first episode of the second season of the stories that brought you here. Thanks for spending an hour with Lisa and myself. And until next time.